Welcome back to Gays With Kids, the podcast. I'm your host, David Dodge, the executive editor of Gays With Kids. And today on the pod, we're gonna be talking about a situation that might be of interest to you if you hope to build your family through surrogacy anytime soon. Nicholas Maggipinto and Corey Briskin discussed having kids pretty much from the first time they met. They also both knew they wanted to have a biological connection to those kids. So after marrying and settling down together in New York City, they chose surrogacy as their preferred path forward. But like many dads to be in this situation, they suffered a bit of sticker shock when they first learned about how much a surrogacy journey can cost, which can be anywhere from $135,000 on the very low end to upwards of $200,000 or more. As two New York City-based public servants, they knew that every penny was going to count towards making their dream a reality, which is why they were so disheartened when they learned that their insurance plan covering city employees would refuse to cover IVF treatments for the couple for no other reason than they were two men. They have since filed a complaint with the city's Equal Employment Opportunity Commission alleging discrimination on the basis of sex and sexual orientation. We're thrilled to have Nicholas and Corey on the pod today, along with their lawyer, Peter Romer Friedman, uh, to get into the nitty gritty of the case. We're also going to talk about how they're feeling about their prospects, what they say to critics who question whether they should pursue surrogacy at all if they need the benefits to do so, and what it feels like to be at the center of a case that can have national implications when all they were really trying to do is start their family. This is a case we're going to be watching very closely as it unfolds at Gays With Kids, so we'll be sure to keep you posted at gayswithkids.com and our social media as we learn more. Um, and in the meantime, we hope you enjoy this really important conversation. Corey and Nicholas, Peter, welcome to the podcast. Super excited to have you here today. So, Thank you for having us. So before we get into your case and you know the main reason we brought you on the podcast today, which we're very excited about and we've been following closely here at Gays With Kids, obviously, uh, this is... A Gays with Kids podcast. We also just love to hear family creation stories, how you two met, how you decided to start a family, if you've always wanted to have a family. So why don't, you, why don't we just start with how you two met and uh, the beginnings of when you guys started to talk about wanting to become dads. First of all, I, I, I'll introduce myself and so that you can put a, a name to the voice. This is Corey Briskin speaking. Um, thank you for having us. Uh, so Nicholas and I uh, first met in law school, actually um, back in 2011. Uh, we both were attending the same law school here in Brooklyn. Initially, I was a, a campus representative for Legal Research Engine Tool. And I, um, I, I met Nicholas in that context. Initially, we became friendly and started studying together for exams and, and uh, working at a, at a nearby cafe to where we were both living. And, and we ultimately started dating in the fall of 2011 and we uh, we had spoken very early on about what our intentions were in terms of building a family what we both not together at that point necessarily we, we had just started dating uh, but individually we had voiced our desire to have children and I think that that was a really important uh, commonality that that we shared because I, I think that if either one of us had said that we didn't want children I think that the outcome would have been quite different I don't think that we would have um, have started our relationship but given that we were on the same page about that very important issue uh, we we began dating and we have been together ever since uh, we were engaged at the end of 2000. 14 uh, and and then ultimately got married in the spring of 2016 and I would say that our plans really to, to start our family began in in earnest before we got married we had met with a um, the, the, the fertility specialist who actually we, we've been working with since then uh, for the first time we met with him uh, before we were married and he shared with us the sort of ins and outs of this process how long it would take and uh, and, and what the cost would be associated with each step of, of the process. And that was kind of when we, we got the sticker shock associated with that. Uh, yep. And we've really been trying ever since to, to get the process started. And unfortunately, it's really just been a matter of, um, of our finances and, and what we've been able to, to afford. And, and that hasn't happened for us yet. But that, that was the way we met. Sure. You know, I, I think, you know, longtime followers of Gays With Kids know because we repeat it all the time because <laughs> it's shocking to basically anyone that finds out, but that, you know, surrogacy can cost anywhere between, uh, I mean, we estimate anywhere at the very low end at 135000 but it can, it can easily stretch up to $200,000 or more, um, depending on your unique set of circumstances. Um, so what was your reaction when you found out uh, the, the price of surrogacy? I basically said to Corey that we're ultimately choosing between, you know, owning a home or having a child first. 
um, it wasn't going to be something that we couldn't do both. Uh, the, the cost is just um, something that's frankly out of reach for most people and is out of reach for us too. We just anticipated that it would be a goal we could work toward. And, and that's really where, you know, our, um, our dispute with the city comes in. Right. So, and, and this is just the, you know, when at Gays with Kids, we obviously, we walk people through different paths to parenthood, no matter which, what their interest is, anything from foster care to adoption to co-parenting arrangements to surrogacy. Um, and it's, it, besides foster care, there really is, uh, you know, there can be some hefty fees uh, that go along with each of these paths to parenthood. Surrogacy is obviously the most involved. And unfortunately, from, from what we're told by our family building partners, it's not, the, the trajectory is not getting cheaper <laughs> over time. And, you know, there's been a lot of uh, problems with um, during the pandemic that has made uh, you know finding and working with uh, surrogates a little bit more difficult and costly. But there is one area where uh, there is seems to be like a pretty clear way that this could be a little bit cheaper for um, for gay, bi, and trans men that are interested in surrogacy. So why don't you just talk about when you found out about um, your IVF coverage or really lack thereof? Sure. So uh, I, we we were getting our, our coverage uh, as a benefit through my employer, uh, which is, uh, you know, I was, I was working for the city of New York and, and uh, Nicholas and I were both covered under an insurance plan offered as a benefit through that job. Uh, and I, I'm going to let Peter talk about specifically when we reached out and, and actually tried to, to see if, if, a, if a claim submitted to the insurance would actually be covered. Um, but in terms of the, the, the policy that, that we had um, and, and that I still do have, I'm, I'm, even though I, I do no longer work for the city of New York, I'm still covered under the city's uh, insurance plan through COBRA. Uh, and the plan, it's in many respects, is excellent. I mean, it has great coverage. In fact, it, it would cover up to ninety-five percent of our uh, of our claims for our doctors, et cetera. But uh, but unfortunately, when it came to all the processes that we would need to and and the treatments that that would be required for the IVF process, that that none of that was was covered, um, and that was something that we learned. Um, after after submitting the, the insurance codes to to the city um, to the insurance company and then, and then reached out to the city, but I'll let Peter speak uh, specifically about what the the response from the city was. When we reached out. Yeah, so let's let's definitely get into that. But let's actually just uh, point blank define what it is or how it is that this, these policies can be discriminate uh, discriminatory for uh, gay men in particular, same sex couples that are trying to uh, pursue IVF and surrogacy. And Peter, why don't you break that down for us? Like, what is it about these policies that discriminate against us? Sure, thanks, David. So, uh, the basic requirement to be able to go through the IVF um, uh, treatment and get it reimbursed by these health plans, like New York City's health plan, is that you have to show that you're infertile, right? So for a straight couple, policies like New York City's generally define it as having had unprotected sex for a certain period of time, like 12 months in the case of New York City. That makes sense. You know, one would not want to normally go through IVF unless there's a reason to. So that's a requirement for straight couples. Um, New York City and, and a good deal of other plans now um, provide benefits for, um, for, for lesbian women. Uh, and they can show infertility by showing that they went through some number of IUI um, uh, uh, cycles. Some require three, some require six. New York requires 12 cycles. Um, in the case of gay men, we know that they are um, technically infertile because together they can never produce uh, an embryo. Um, but New York City doesn't, uh, doesn't address that, it has a gap. And so when uh, Corey Nicholas uh, went to New York City uh, in June of 2021 and said, we have the same need uh, for donor, for egg donor services, for extracting the egg and fertilizing the egg. Um, New York City said, you know, you're not covered. We don't provide these benefits if you were, um, if you were a straight uh, couple or if you were a lesbian couple, um, we'd be able to provide reimbursement for tens of thousands of dollars, but you're, you're just out of luck. And, um, you know, that's, that's how these policies have evolved. I think um, they've, you know, they, they've come from the, from the starting point of uh, the straight couple being the, the normative thing. And they've gotten, they've made a little bit of progress by including lesbian women. Uh, we're looking for full equality and to make sure that all families are, are, are covered and treated equally. 
um, and we followed up again uh, last July and then over a number of months trying to engage the city's lawyers on this issue to make the case that this is both kind of morally wrong but legally wrong as well to deny uh, Corey and Nicholas the same benefits simply because they're the wrong sex or they're the wrong sexual orientation uh, as far as the city is concerned. And the, the city basically said, take a walk. We're not interested in uh, talking about changing the policy. As far as we know, there's no legal obstacle uh, for the city to, to, to provide them this, uh, these kinds of benefits for IVF. And if anything, we believe uh, federal, state, and local law that, um, that address non-discrimination and require non-discrimination require full and equal treatment. What was your reaction, um, Corey, when you found out that this was the reason that you would not be able to get coverage, that you were uh, not uh, being deemed infertile? You know, and again, like this conception of fertility, infertility is obviously just like Peter was saying, it's based in a, like a heteronormative idea of, uh, you know, having a family. Um, and it, you know, it's, in a lot of ways, it's just outdated and hasn't caught up with the times yet. But, uh, but the fact that the city was <laughs> refusing to even entertain like a broader definition of this, uh, but just what, can you talk about what the feeling was like when you figured out that it was something so kind of uh, minute and kind of outdated that, um, that, uh, that was going to deny you this coverage? I would say that it was um, really disheartening to, to, to learn that an employer that uh, I, that I had worked for, I mean, for even regardless of how long I, I, I worked for the, the city, the, the job that I was doing for the city was was really one that I had I had taken uh, at a great sacrifice to to myself and my family, and I, and, and I don't regret that at all. I mean, the, the, the reality is that working as an assistant district attorney, um, a lawyer job in the public sector, is is not something that you do for the money. It's just it's just not. And so, and I, and I knew I knew that going in. I guess I, I just never expected that in addition to the financial sacrifice that I and by extension Nicholas made um, when I decided to, to, to take this, this position, I never expected that there was going to be the sacrifice of not being able to pursue uh, IVF services um, through the insurance plan offered as a benefit through through the city of New York, and and so I, I I guess just because my job was was one where I was serving the constituents of the city of New York, specifically Manhattan, um, I, it it felt particularly unfair and saddened me deeply to 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 learn that we we were going to be or that we were we rejected um, and that our our claim would not be covered. Yeah, I can just add to that. You know. It was one thing, um, I think it would have been one thing in the abstract um, to you know, have a strong emotional reaction to the fact that frankly, we're being discriminated against. And I, I said that from the beginning of this, you know, from the beginning of this um, situation with Corey's employer. But I think it also um, kind of added insult to injury that we, Corey knew other colleagues who actually had availed themselves of these benefits um, and you know they were his; they were otherwise his equals in the workplace. And this was, at its core, an employment benefit. It was something that was supposed to be offered to all employees. So it added another layer of, of you know, just unequal treatment um, to somebody who is really sacrificing, like Corey said, quite a lot to do his job. And beyond that, his job is to enforce the laws for the benefit of the people of the city of New York, particularly the, you know, Manhattan, which is where he was employed. Um, and we just frankly weren't getting the same protection that in my opinion, we should have and still should. Those of you with babies and small kids at home, think about this. A lot of the food you pass in the baby food aisle at the grocery store has been sitting on that shelf for longer than maybe your kids even been alive. The stuff can be so heavily processed and our kids deserve better. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Little Spoon, which has an awesome menu of baby and toddler kid food that is non-GMO and organic, made with fresh ingredients and absolutely nothing artificial. It's all basically homemade and just delivered straight to your door in a cooler box so you can just pop the meals in the fridge or freezer and heat them up when your little ones are ready to eat. We had a couple of uh, tiny taste testers help us out. <laughs> um, Eight-month-old Logan absolutely loved Little Spoon's baby food blends, especially the guava, mango, apple, and pear mashup. And he loved the organic smoothies as well with hidden vegetables like the sweet potato and carrot cake smoothie, as well as the veggie-packed green dream with chai. 
So uh, with kids' meals under $5 and baby food smoothies and snacks under 3 trying Little Spoon is really affordable. At Gates with Kids listeners can get 50% off their first order with the code GWK50 at checkout, and that's uh, at littlespoon.com. That's code GWK50 at littlespoon.com. And it is a process that has all sorts of different barriers <laughs> in it as, as, as uh, gay, bi, and trans men start to learn when they start to look closer at surrogacy. It's not, you know, they, they tell you to expect something to go wrong. You not totally know what that is um, to, you know, expect um, a hefty price tag and to start saving and to do everything you can. So it, it really is something as simple as this that could be just uh, one way that we could make this process easier. It seems like, um, you know, to me, a no-brainer. And, I, and so, Peter, I guess... What is also surprising, I think, for maybe a lot of people listening to this, and it is to me certainly, is, uh, you know, we're in New York City, right? So this is New York City, New York State. It's one of the most progressive, forward-thinking states in the country. Um, yet we were among the very last states to legalize surrogacy, uh, uh, or at least um, paid surrogacy in this state, which just happened a couple of years ago. And it's, to my knowledge, still kind of struggling to get its uh, foothold in the state. Um and so then, you know, this, the fact that, you know, I, I could see being um, in a place of just pure ignorance about this. So I think uh, a lot of cities and states are probably just not even thinking about broadening the definition of um, fertility or infertility, because it's just not something that's started to become as common as it is today, right? So uh, so I guess the, the question is here, um, wh what is it about New York <laughs> uh, that you think is making them drag their feet on this? Um, and then if you could also just kind of situate this nationally for us like where uh where is this fight happening elsewhere is it happening elsewhere is this kind of a national movement to try to get um a broader definition of, of how we think of um, family building and and the definition of fertility and infertility sure those are those are good questions so as far as we know this is the first time that a legal action has been filed by um, gay men who are seeking to get equal ivf benefits vis-a-vis um, -vis other other employees um, we're aware of one other dispute, I don't think that went to court uh, or to the EOC where there was some publicity in Illinois. Um, you know, I, we don't have a comprehensive sense of where things are at, but a number of states are looking at the question of an uh, in, in insurance and fertility in particular, um, the idea of codifying generally a non-discrimination requirement. Um, so for example, New York state uh, insurance law uh, was amended a couple of years ago to say that you can't discriminate in fertility uh, and in IVF in particular with respect to sex or sexual orientation. You know, nevertheless, here we are, um, Nicholas and Corey are not being treated equally in terms of sex or sexual orientation for IVF benefits in New York State. Uh, Illinois recently adopted a, a much more specific statutory provision that, that I, I think uh, goes as far as we need to to make clear that gay men as well as lesbian women can, can qualify for um, as being infertile in order to get uh, a range of fertility benefits. So, um, you know, the, but to, to take a step back, you know, New York law and New York City law in particular for decades has protected against sexual orientation discrimination as well as sex discrimination. And so um, it is a little surprising that New York City as an employer has not thought about this issue before apparently because uh, if, you know, if Corey and Nicholas had talked to the city 15 years ago about the same issue, we would have pointed to the same provision of New York City's anti-discrimination law that says you can't discriminate in employee benefits based on sex or sexual orientation. Now, at the federal level, um, it wasn't so clear until two years ago that LGBTQ workers were protected against sexual orientation or sexual identity discrimination under the federal Title VII law. And it was in a case called Bostock uh, versus Clayton County, where um, a six to three majority of the US Supreme Court, a very conservative Supreme Court, I'd note, uh, held that uh, sexual orientation and the protection of LGBTQ workers is encompassed within the federal Title VII law's prohibition on sex discrimination. So you know, theoretically, it's the law of the land that everywhere in America, uh, if you're covered by the Title VII law, which the vast majority of employees are, um, you have a right to, to be free of discrimination based on sex and sexual orientation. And you know, we think a very straightforward application of that federal law and state and local laws too um, requires the conclusion that gay men have every right to be um, able to get the same IVF benefits as other employees. They have the same need for them and they should have the same um, access to them. So, um, you know, prior to the Bostic decision, 
litigators, in, including including me, had been arguing that um, gay and lesbian couples should be entitled to all of the same protections, um, incl including employee benefits like healthcare. And it was pretty obvious, right, that if you, um, you know, if you're a lesbian couple or a gay couple and they're not giving your spouse health insurance because of your same-sex relationship, um, that that was discrimination um, based on sex or sexual orientation. The same is exactly true here. The only reason that Corey and Nicholas can't get this benefit is that they're male and they're uh, they're gay they're gay men. Um, if they were a different sex or a different orientation, they'd get the benefit, and that's a classic form of what we call uh, a sex or sexual orientation based classification. It's also a stereotype. The idea that you know, um, as you pointed out, a heteronormative um, assumption of who should be having children and who does the city want to support. So. You know, in a, in a liberal bastion like New York City, we think they've got to do better. You know, even if they didn't think about this issue until now, we're starting a dialogue with them and we hope that they respond constructively and agree to, to reform this really terrible policy. I would just add to that, you know, of, of all employers, the, the city of New York, which is a municipal employer, empl it employs those who are not at the upper levels of of, uh, of, of earners, and and yet, it's the same employer that's denying this this right, this benefit to to its own employees. And just in in terms of the fundamental fairness, and you had asked earlier what what my feelings were uh, upon learning that that we were being denied the coverage. It just seems so horribly unfair that the person who works in the next office over. Uh, from me who has an opposite sex spouse and wants to have a child and, and ultimately realizes that they're going to need IVF coverage, they would have no problem getting that coverage. And, and even the same sex female couple would also be entitled to those same benefits after however many rounds of, of IUI. It, it's just, it, it felt so unfair and, and continues to feel so unfair. And it's, it's only exacerbated by the fact that the city is, is, has been unwilling to change its policy. We should just uh, point out for the context that um, only 19 states in the country have any kind of infer infertility insurance law and only 13 states, New York being one of them, require um, employers to uh, that are of a certain size to provide IVF at all. So um, there is, you know, a lot of states are way behind the game generally <laughs> in providing this coverage that you know sh should be offered to people that are struggling to start their families in whatever way that that uh, is for them. Uh, but you know, I guess hopefully that gives an opportunity for the states that are struggling with this um, to be thinking about this as they they pass these laws to be inclusive and to not uh, to pass laws that end up being discriminatory. One one of the other problems that that the current paradigm presents is the fact that the states, the, the states that do require IVF coverage for employers of a certain size require it basically through the traditional healthcare paradigm. So in other words, they require the employer to have a to offer a healthcare plan that has some sort of coverage. But that presents sort of the fundamental conflict between the employer and the health insurance plan to point fingers at each other and say, well, the other one is responsible for essentially the discrimination instead of to focus on the discrimination itself and come up with a solution for it. No, ex excellent point. So this is, um, you know, so I know plenty of uh, gay couples that have gone through this process in the state of New York and have and come up against this exact same problem. People that have worked for the city and the state. Um, and they, you know, said that this is unfair, that this shouldn't be right, but they just ate the cost and they moved forward and they didn't fight it. You two have decided not to do that. So what is it uh, that made you decide to stand up and, and be public about this? And, you know, where there's a big New York Times article last um, month featuring the two of you very prominently as, you know, now kind of like the figureheads of this fight here. What, so the this is a twofold question. What made you decide that you were, you know, the buck start, stops with the two of you? Um, and what has it been like to be kind of, um, you know, kind of front and center on this issue and, ha and have the attention on you um, with regards to, to what you're trying to do here? Uh, why don't we, uh, we'll start with you, Corey, and then I'd love to hear from you too, Nick. Sure, uh, I, I, and it's a great question, and it's something that I've, I've given a lot of thought to. Uh, I, I, I think that for us, there's the practical matter of our inability to afford the enormous price tag that this process carries. And you know, somewhat, in, in somewhat as a response to some of the unfortunate negative uh, 
feedback we have received mostly through, uh, you know, on, online message boards connected to the articles that have been that have been uh, released on, on on our case. Uh, you know, it, it it really is a financial. Like, if we could afford to have children right now, separate and apart from the fight that we've taken on uh, against the city and, and its discriminatory policy, we, we would have those those children. And and uh, you know, rest assured, those those children are not here because we we actually cannot afford the the the, the process. Um, and you know. Even though Nicholas works for a, a private law firm uh, and and makes a salary that that is certainly larger than the salary that I make now as a, a, a public employee as a federal law clerk, uh, but and also larger than than my salary was when I worked at the district attorney's office, we have other financial obligations that that are significant, um, specifically student loan debt and, and um, you know, rent payments to live in, in New York City. It, it, it's, it's not just a matter of you have a high paying job. And, and so that means that you could afford IVF because the price tag is that high. Uh, and, and so to answer your question more, um, more directly, the, the practical consideration is certainly what is driving, uh, driving the bus in part, but, but the other, the other aspect for us is, is, just the, the the desire to clear a path for others, particularly those who you've just described, people who who faced this issue and decided that it just wasn't worth it. That really isn't built into the DNA of, of either me or, or Nicholas. And and when we learned of uh, of Peter, of, of our attorney, and and uh, the the work that he's done in this space uh, previously, it just seemed like we would. We would have been doing a disservice to so many had we decided to have the same reaction. And 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 don't get me wrong, a reaction that is completely understandable that this is just a fight that is too uh, that that is just too hard to take on and and would would require too much. And and it and it has. And and while it has been great to have the attention uh, it, just on our on our on our our claim and and our cause. Um, it it certainly has made me realize how differently people view that this this issue, and it has certainly been hard to hear the and to receive the negative feedback. But I should also note that it, it feels really great to when we get support from our friends and family, but also from perfect strangers who really just cannot fathom that in two thousand twenty two. We could be living in a world, particularly in, as Peter put it, the you know bastion of liberal thought here in, in New York City, uh, and and yet being denied this this right, this this benefit, uh, is shocking. And it's been it's been great to have that input as well, and and the outpouring of support there. How about you, Nick? You know, well, what I would say, just to supplement what Corey's already said, um, this started with just simple affordability, right? Dollars and cents, we couldn't afford to do this and we can't afford to do this um, without the benefit uh, that that we frankly should, should have gotten and should be getting from the city. But there was a remedy to that. And we engaged the city in that conversation about you know, how, we, you know, how we could move forward, resolve our differences um, and basically get what we wanted, which was the financial assistance to have a child through IVF. Where that broke down is basically where they said, you know, we're not willing to change the policy. Because the fact of the matter is that Corey and I each want to, uh, you know, be biological fathers. And um, without changing the policy, because we're not really willing to, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not interested in, in having two separate surrogate journeys and we're not interested in, uh, you know, having a twin journey or a twibbling journey. The, the timing of all that would not necessarily be immediate. So without changing the policy, we would essentially have one child that the, the city maybe would have compensated us for without changing the policy. And then we'd be in the exact same position, let's say in two years, because without the policy change, the discrimination is still there. Right. When the city said that they wouldn't change the policy, they wouldn't even have that conversation. That sort of ended for me, um, the possibility of resolving this without, uh, you know, moving forward in, in an adversarial process, because number one, it's just fundamentally unfair. And number two, 
the city, which is a government entity, has absolutely no business regulating this in the way that they do. And I just won't stand for it. And nobody else should have to go through this. And it has your, to stop with someone and I'm yeah. happy to have it stop with us. Well, and it, uh, you know, we're thrilled that you're, you're uh, fighting this. Um, and, you know, but it's also had a, it, there's a practical element to this, as you've said, you're, you obviously just need this in order to be able to afford um, surrogacy. But the, what people might not know about surrogacy, unless they're familiar, is that it's also not a, it's not a quick process. Start to finish, people estimate it takes about two years. Um, and again, with some of the delays that are built into the process now, because of COVID, it can, you know, that timeline can stretch even longer. So for you two, the whole thing's on hold, um, I assume, until, you're, until you see this out. Um, or can you just talk about how it it has or has not impacted your plans now? Or is it you'll wait to see what happens here? Yeah, I I, I want to respond to this because I this is probably where where I feel the, the most strongly and and frankly even hearing it um, uh, described in the the way that that you you put it that we're basically in, in a holding pattern uh, it really it it impacts me deeply because I'm I'm conscious of the fact that tomorrow is Nicholas's 37th birthday. And two years, even if we were to start this process tomorrow, you know, we would be encroaching upon his 40th birthday and we aren't starting this process tomorrow because we're not able to do it yet. So Nicholas will be at least 40 by the time that we have a child. And the fact that we began talking about this, it will be a, a decade at, at least prior to, to we first started talking about having children, and and certainly uh, within that time, we made efforts in earnest to to make that happen for ourselves. The fact that that it hasn't is is so upsetting, and and it's time that we'll never get back. And and to a point that you made earlier too, th there's further damage that this has caused. Is that you're right? The 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 cost associated with these with IVF and surrogacy. These 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 costs have increased both with inflation, but also because the demand has grown, and COVID has had a, a large impact on, on that as well. And so now, what even if we had been saving with the expectation that we would be able to 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 complete this process for a particular amount of money, that that amount is 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 no longer realistic because of the, these price increases. And so the longer that we wait the more that these prices are going up and the harder it becomes for us to ever achieve what it is that we're hoping to achieve, which is to, to build a family. Right, no, uh, well, that's uh, super frustrating. Um, Nicholas, happy birthday tomorrow. <laughs> Hope you can Thank enjoy you. it uh, despite all this. Um, but so, so this, it does raise a question though that um, I'm gonna, and this is 100% me playing devil's advocate. Um, and it's something I've heard from also just people within our own community, but definitely outside of it. And it's the sense that, uh, so if you have to fight this hard in order to afford something that's just out of your price range, um, is it something you should be pursuing at all? So why not then pursue adoption or foster care or you know what, what, what's your response to that? I definitely have my own, <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm curious what you guys would say to people that, or if that has been said to you um, and what your response well, is. My response would be that, you know, I don't believe in um, sort of classist parenting where only the wealthy can afford to make the families that they want. Um, so, you know, just because we can't afford it immediately or can't afford it entirely, I don't think should preclude us from, from, from being parents, especially because um, there's a certain intentionality about being parents that we bring to the table by having to make this investment that other couples, you know, don't have. And frankly, not disparaging to them, but they could have children by accident. Um, and I and think that do. the intentionality <laughs> we bring, exactly, and often do. And I think the intentionality that we bring to being parents um, says something about our, um, our stake, you know, our, our horse in this fight, so to speak. The other thing I would say is that there's a fundamental misunderstanding by the general public about adoption. Most adoption in the United States is private adoption. It's through organizations, many of which are religiously oriented, that have their own biases and frankly will not adopt children to same-sex couples or even single people. Um, sometimes it's limited to religion too. Um, that's not the type of family that 
first of all, it's not open to us. And second of all, it's not the type of family that we uh, want to have where those restrictions are imposed on us. The public adoption process is also not simple. It's very costly. Uh, there are a lot of institutional, institutional excuse me, barriers um, that, you know, that you have to jump through. And after spending, you know, a significant amount of money, sometimes up to $100,000, you, you may not end up with an adopted child. So to, yeah. to those people who, who, who make those comments, I think that they're sort of simplistically solving the problem without considering that these are actually not solutions to the problem. Not and exactly. I would just add yeah, one please. thing too, um, which is that, you know, I, I really take issue with the notion of someone telling me how I should build my family because, you know, I do wonder who's on the other side of these trolling comments. You know, the, 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 this is a person who quite likely has children that they had, maybe they're, maybe they're, they're in an opposite sex relationship and they got pregnant or their spouse got pregnant and they had their child and no one blinked, no one said anything about the fact that they didn't go and try and adopt the child before they decided to conceive exactly. of one naturally. Yeah. And so I, I just think that, and, and it's so, I, I, this really strikes me as particularly prescient now with, with everything that is going on surrounding the issue of abortion. You know, just, I, I, this is not anybody's business but ours, how we decide that we're going to build our families. And for somebody to weigh in on that is is completely inappropriate and extremely painful to hear. And that those are the comments I think that really, you know, I know you're playing devil's advocate, and I'm sure you don't agree with the position that you um, that you presented. But but those are really the, the I get the most frustrated and saddened by is is when someone suggests that I'm making the wrong decision or that how dare I uh, decide that that I want to create my family through IVF and surrogacy. Not to mention the other the the other angle, which really is not part of our case, but um, the other type of, of criticism that we've received is about is about surrogacy itself, and there's a lot of criticism um, surrounding that that issue as well. Uh, and I, I don't want to digress too much, but just to say that you know there are willing surrogates who want nothing more than to support the creation of a family for two individuals who otherwise are would be unable to have one naturally biologically um and and for all the reasons that nicholas named as to why adoption can be so difficult if not impossible for for people who identify as gay or queer of of, of any kind the, the reality is that these these trolls have have a lot of nerve and really I don't know where they get off making any comment about how we should be building our family. Well, it's just the uh, keyboard warriors. It's easy to, you know, cast judgment from behind um, your computer. Um, and it, I think, Nicholas, you're right. It is coming from a place of uh, pure ignorance. I mean, I, we we hear this at Gays with Kids all the time, lobbed by people who don't have any kids. And so it's where, where do you get off like at all? Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it really is something that I think people are very ignorant about um, adoption and foster care in this country. So at Gays with Kids, we are huge proponents of every path to parenthood available to uh, gay, bi, and trans men. And those are two of the paths that we uh, know a lot about. And um, I, this will be a, a nice place for me to plug our GWK Academy, which no matter which of these paths you're interested in, we have a 90-day program where we'll walk you through each of the steps and we'll prepare you for these sorts of things. Um, and the good news is that um, I, you know, as, assuming that our <laughs> Supreme Court doesn't start to knock things down left and right on the subject of queer rights too. Um, but adoption and foster care by gay, bi and trans men is legal in every state in this country. Um, as And it's legal to serve as a foster parent in every state in this country. That doesn't mean that every state makes it easy for you. So uh, I think the, the number right now is 13 states have passed laws that make it legal to discriminate against uh, the queer community. Um, but those are often specific agencies, often religiously motivated, like you've, like you've mentioned. And in every state, there is a place where you can adopt and serve as a foster parent. Um, but a lot of people don't know, you know, it's, it, you have to weed through a lot of crap to get to that, which is, again, why we're, we're trying to help uh, guide people to the very specific agency we know is going to work with you and not uh, be discriminatory and is actually going to be, you know, inclusive and go out of their way to try to, to, to help you. But so that said, like, it's, you know, people don't understand how much queer people have to go through to, to adopt and, and serve as foster parents. And that often people don't know how expensive adoption is. That can stretch up to 50K as well. So that's not something people just have like lying around all the time. Foster care is free and it comes with support that um, other paths lack, but 
Um, not everyone's cut out to be a foster parent. And it's something that uh, you have to be very intentional about going into that process. A lot of people decide to be foster parents after they've built the families that they want. So it really is uh, no one's business, as you're saying. Sorry, I'm editorializing now. As you can see that I really was playing devil's advocate, I promise. Um, but, uh, you know, it is, it is, it, it makes my blood boil too that anyone has any sort of uh, say as to how people decide to make their family and why there's a, this expectation placed on the backs of queer people that we have to somehow be the ones that are going to, you know, rush to the adoption agencies and foster care agencies. And, uh, you know, it's like, why is, and we do actually adopt and service foster parents in far greater numbers than our straight brothers and sisters. So, you know, get off our backs a little bit. Um, anyway, <laughs> let's give, yeah, please, Peter, go ahead. Um, you know, a friend, a good friend of mine from college called me six months ago and said, hey, you know, good news to share. My wife and I are having a kid. We're using a surrogate. And, you know, we tried various ways. And this was the only way we could do it, um, to go through IVF and use a surrogate. That's the only way to have a biological child. Right. And I said, Mazel tov. I'm so happy for you. That's great. I didn't ask him, well, why didn't you adopt? Right. Or why didn't you, why didn't you, you know, go through other, other means? The same should, should apply for Corey and Nicholas, and there should be no judgment against gay men of any kind because uh, they want to have a baby through biological means. Um, not, it's not every, for everyone. My, my aunt was an adoption lawyer for 30, 35 years in San Francisco, worked with tons of LGBTQ families and straight families. And it's a wonderful thing if you can adopt a child, but it, it, as I think Nicholas pointed out, it is very difficult, um, especially for gay men. So. Um, I think part of the way that you have to look at, at, at the situation here is that there's a history of discrimination. So the choices that gay men can make today with respect to having children are defined by that, by that discrimination. And so part of what we're trying to do right now is you know, equalize the playing field so that maybe in 10 or 20 years, uh, this won't be a problem. The same way that for Corey and Nicholas, they were able to get married without having to think twice you know, about whether they could. Um, it's wonderful when rights can evolve in the right direction as opposed to, you know, what we're about to see from the Supreme Court on Roe v. Wade. Um, but, you know, we're in, we're in a much better place than we were 20 years ago. And I think it's because of people who have courage, like Corey and Nicholas, um, like Obergefell, like Windsor, like, um, like Lawrence, right? These are folks who have the courage to um, take on the government, to take on employers, and say that you know equal rights means equal rights, and our, our modern conception of equal rights has to include everyone. So, for me as a lawyer, it's wonderful to work with people like Corey Nicholas who want to change things, as well as you know get the benefits that they've earned and deserve. If you're a queer man listening to this and you have your heart set on having a biological child, you likely already know how expensive surrogacy is, costing as much as two hundred thousand dollars or more. Many queer men understandably experience sticker shock at this number and become a little bit hopeless. But there are ways to make having a baby as a queer man more affordable, and one of those ways is with Mosey Baby, which makes affordable and easy-to-use at-home insemination kits. So this kit would be perfect for anyone interested in an intentional co-parenting situation with a friend or a couple, or maybe you're one of the lucky guys who has an incredible person in their life willing to carry your child for free, meaning you can maybe skip the fertility clinic. Mosey Baby's Baby Making Plus Bundle includes everything gay parents to be need to get started on their at-home insemination journey. This includes specially designed insemination syringes, pregnancy tests, ovulation tests, and fertility loop. Mosey Baby has helped thousands of LGBTQ couples and singles form their families in co-parenting or known donor situations, while avoiding a lot of the major expenses that come with other surrogacy options. You can find out more at moseybaby.com and get 10% off your first order with code GWK10. That's code GWK10 at moseybaby.com. To what extent, Peter, I'm curious, um, do you think that this is a, uh, I mean, it seems you know aggressive on the part of, of the city to just outright say they're not willing to entertain this, uh, which again is why you're suing and you know rightfully so. Uh, but so let's say like comparing it to the uh, paid leave movement right now, which again, there's policies all over this country that are in incredibly discriminatory against uh, queer families, but also just anyone that's not like a birthing parent. There's this idea that if you don't birth, um, um, a, a kid, then you don't need the same time to bond and, uh, and recover. Um, and, you know, so th this is starting to be a movement where a lot of employers are leading the charge, actually, where they are now understanding that when, you know, an adopted, um, uh, adoptive uh, parent comes to them and says, you know, I didn't give physical birth to this, but I, you know, I deserve the same amount of time to be bonding and uh, creating a home with this, uh, 
with this child or when a same-sex couple does surrogacy or whatever uh, the case may be, a lot of, we've we've started to see, it's just really, it's a pure, pure sense of ignorance on the part of a lot of employers um, and politicians that they're just not encountering it that much. People are not making the noise that uh, Corey Nicholas are uh, and, and people are starting to do it more. So uh, I guess this would be the most generous reading I could come up with <laughs> as to why the states haven't started to move in this direction on, on uh, the IVF coverage. But so I guess, to what extent do you think it's actively uh, malignant on the part of cities uh, and states versus ignorant? Well, I think, you know, 10 years ago, you could have um, chalked it up to ignorance. I think today it's a lot harder. Um, and I, I'm one of the very few lawyers who's litigated cases around uh, dads not getting parental leave. I worked on a case with J.P. Morgan Chase a couple of years ago where they were giving um, birthing parents 16 weeks and, and treating them presumptively, uh, treating birth parents presumptively as the primary caregiver and then giving non-primary caregivers two weeks of leave. And men had to jump through, non-birthing parents had to jump through uh, additional hoops and sometimes couldn't actually get through those hoops to get the 16 weeks of leave. Um, as a rule of thumb, those policies are illegal if the birthing parent is being given more than six weeks of leave uh, beyond what other, um, other employees are, are, are being given, whether it's adoptive parents or, or, birth, or the non-birthing parent. Uh, and that's because you, you can actually um, legally justify giving, giving a woman who gives birth a, a number of additional weeks to recover from, the, from giving birth. But um, anything beyond that is essentially a stereotype that is suggesting that um, you know, women who give birth are more deserving or going to be better parents to take care of their children. And so I've actually, I've seen some policies and, and gone after them um, and, and certainly interested in hearing from folks about this issue. Um, you know, if, if a policy is giving the non-birthing parents substantially less leave, paid leave, than the birthing parent, like 10, 12, 14 weeks less of leave, um, it's sex discrimination. And they're particularly pernicious for gay men. And this is something, when I saw a policy like this a decade ago, I said, you know what, you know, what about the two gay men lawyers who, um, you know, at the firm who, who would get two weeks each? What do you do with two weeks of parental leave? Um, and if, you know, if, if both uh, gay men and the couple are, have the same kind of a policy, um, they might collectively have four weeks of leave to take to care for their child. And that's, you know, that's not, um, that's not treating families like they're important. And that's what, that's what parental leave is supposed to be about, is treating people and their families like they're important to give them the benefit of, of taking off some time to care for their child. So um, I think that the parental leave issue is a, is a really good example of where um, there's this heteronormative understanding and, and, and thinking that we haven't overcome yet. Um, and it's, it's kind of sad that we're, you know, we're, um, we're really 10 years after a lot of states started to adopt um, and legalize same-sex marriage. And you'd think that all these benefits that relate to marriage and, and childbirth and, and caretaking would be equalized by now, but right. we're going to fight for equality on, on every front. And, you know, glad that Corey Nicholas are out there on this. So, in, and on that note, so this is something that I, I wonder a lot about on this particular issue is focused on the word infertile, which again is is in a uh, in these policies is a very heteronormative uh, reading of of that term. But uh, yeah, I, like a medical doctor, if you're going to talk about infertility, they have a specific definition about that. So, is the strategy to redefine the word infertile um, and to make it more broad and inclusive of people like uh, same-sex couples, uh, male couples, or would you say would it be better? Um, you know, in a perfect world to be just like rewriting these policies to just, you know, be very specific about who it is that uh, should be included and why. Again, I think there's there's a moral, you know, ethical justification for what we're fighting for here. So I, I sometimes wonder why it is that some are, are pushing to for this, like uh, to broaden just the term infertile uh, versus trying to come up with, you know, just like a new way to conceive of this. Yeah, I mean, I think either way would, would do the trick, right? You can define infertile to mean two gay men who can't have um, you know, a biological child together without, you know, without an IVF, or you can create a more holistic um, understanding of, of what we're trying to do in these policies. I mean, what, what are, one of the things that I think we need to keep in mind is even though New York state has now required IVF benefits, most states don't, right? So in most instances, these policies, employers are providing this, this really important benefit because they want to encourage um, their employees um, and, and make it possible for them to have biological children and families um, when they can through, through traditional means, right? 
It's about promoting having children uh, some, some way biologically. And there's no reason why the law or an employer's policy can't just say, this is available to everyone irrespective of their circumstances. And it doesn't really matter how you get there, even if there are a couple different ways. Um, there are some employers like Deutsche Bank, for example, um, that have given a cash benefit to gay men to use for, for to reimburse IVF services so that they can get the same kind of benefit that uh, women get under their health plan for IVF. So, you know, they don't call them infertile under the plan, but they recognize that these services are necessary and gay men need them and they're going to re they reimburse them. I, I would just say one, one more thing. I, mean, I, I don't want to lose track or lose sight of the fact that people generally don't turn to IVF unless they have to. This is not this is not the the preferred method for somebody who can conceive of a child naturally through through uh, ha having sex or through IUI even although that is certainly um, there are uh, drawbacks to, to that process as well particularly when done multiple times as is required under uh, the the plan um, that, that we were covered under are covered under but the, the reality is that I really see this as, a, as an employee retention issue, right? I mean, for, for the reasons that Peter said, I mean, this is about family building, engendering a sense of, of, uh, of, of happiness and completeness amongst uh, an employer's employees. And, and yet it's not viewed that way. And it's just really, it's surprising to me considering that the exposure that an employer has, financially speaking, is really not that great when you consider how few people relatively require would require these services and, and and it really truly is a matter of requiring them because again i don't think that there's anybody who turns to ivf and surrogacy because they just want to uh, and 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 when you look at that in comparison to the potential for loss of talent and 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 attrition uh, I, I just think it, even looking at it in the dollars and cents from a dollars and cents perspective, this is really a no-brainer. But yet, that's not been uh, the the response that we've we've gotten from, from the city. No, it's uh, absolutely true. Um, and it will, you know, I think it will just eventually take more and more people, not just those that are going to file lawsuits like you, like YouTube, but raising this issue with their employers. Again, we we're, we are working on a whole toolkit for. Um, uh, gay couples to and and singles who are having kids to be using on the issue of paid family leave. This is another issue. You know, so it, it does something that's like an, it's going to take advocacy. It's going to be taking a lot of people complaining to say this is a right that we deserve. Um, and you know, hopefully over time it'll get there. But yeah, you know, we thank the two of you for for leading the charge. And uh, where are we at with the case? What what is there any latest update that you can provide, Peter? Sure. So the the charge was filed with the EEOC before you can go to court under federal um, anti-discrimination law. You've got to file a charge with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is a federal agency based in Washington, but it has field offices all over the, the country. So we filed our charge um, in the New York City field office of the EEOC, uh, and we've learned that the city is supposed to respond um, in, in mid-May. So we may be receiving what's called a position statement from the city where they would ostensibly justify their, their position um, uh, in the next few days. We, we more likely will receive it in the next month because lawyers like to request extensions. But um, the, the EOC will undertake an investigation and after about six months, um, hopefully the EOC will, will issue a determination about whether New York City is violating the law. And um, at that point, uh, the government can either prosecute the city of New York uh, as the plaintiff, uh, or um, we can get what's called a right to sue letter, which would allow Corey and Nicholas to go to court and and sue the city of New York in in federal court. So we're we're looking, you know, we think the city has an opportunity to do the right thing and respond positively and come to us and say we'd like to resolve this. That happens a lot, I think, when employers realize that they've broken the law and they want to do the right thing. Right. Um, Hopefully. But, um, you know, if they if they don't want to go the nice way, we'll do it the hard way and we'll take them to court. And, I mean, also, I, I just want to just sorry to interrupt here, but I would yeah. just say, too, that even regardless of how far we end up having to go with with our case, just the finding a favorable finding for, for us alone would be. And, and Peter, you can you can expound upon this uh, a bit. But but my, my understanding is that a finding 
uh, a favorable finding for us would, would just in itself have enormous impact because that would be a federal agency looking at this policy and saying, you know, this is, this is not okay. And it would force then employers across the country. This is not just going to affect New York City, New York State, but employers across the country would be forced then to look at their policies because a federal agency has, has issued a, a finding that, it, that, that any policy that looks and sounds like ours is discriminatory. That's right. You know, the implications of the EEOC finding in Corey Nicholas' favor would be huge. Um, generally speaking, um, the corporate lawyers who advise uh, large employers, um, whether they be cities or, you know, Fortune 500 companies that employ so many people around the country, uh, if the EOC has taken a position like that, they're going to recommend um, that the employer comply with that position of the EOC. So um, we have a real opportunity not just to change things for folks who work for the city of New York, but people who work for companies and uh, cities and uh, states all over America, private sector, public sector. Um, it's a wonderful thing in America when two people who have been discriminated against cannot just fight for themselves, but fight for literally everyone in the country who is in their circumstances. And it's, you know, it's one of the positive things of our legal system that, um, that through precedent and through federal agency action, um, we, can, we can change things across the country. Um, and it's wonderful too that you know, there's been so much media attention about the story. Um, I know that Corey and Nicholas have gotten some small negative feedback, but overwhelmingly, I think it's been positive. And I think people who didn't um, at first blush really understand what this case is about, when they've learned the details, they've all been very supportive and understand why we're just seeking basic equality. And um, you know, even people who aren't enthusiastic about gay rights have told me, you know, I understand. And that makes, that makes real sense. And if they want to, if they need the IVF benefits, they ought to get them. So I think we've already made a lot of progress in uh, advancing the conversation. Um, sometimes the law is in, you know, advances things uh, in, in the social context. And sometimes, the kind of social political context moves, moves things along in the law. So either way, I think we're going to get to the right place in this case. And one more thing, just because I can't, I would be remiss if I didn't say it. This is not costing taxpayer dollars. And for those who are out there that are, that look at this as a taxpayer issue, it is so misguided. And really it's, this just goes to my point earlier about like, just, just mind your own business. If, if, if even if you don't agree or with the, the, the premise or the concept of, you know, and as Peter has said, you know, we've gotten such support even from those who don't necessarily share our views on what rights a same-sex couple should have. You know, it's just, it's just wrong if you look at this as a, a taxpayer dollar issue. And, and yet there are people out there who, who have commented on, on that aspect incorrectly. To clarify, uh, yeah. it's the, the IVF is not a taxpayer dollars issue. The discrimination is. The discrimination, <laughs> you know, paying yeah. the lawyers to fight you know, the, the discrimination like charge, action, yeah. that is a taxpayer dollars issue. Well, as it should be, right? We're fighting discrimination right. here. Uh, so I just last, I mean, you know, I, I feel good about your case. I, I hope you all do. It's great that you're out there doing this. It seems like a no-brainer to, I think, like you said, anyone that really stops to think about it. Uh, again, it's surprising to me the city fought it to begin with. But uh, Nicholas, what, how are you feeling about your prospects? I feel great about them. Um, I've said for a long time that, you know, we really believe in this case and we, while we hope the city does the right thing, um, they haven't to date. And if they continue on that same path, we're ready to litigate this to the end. How about you, Corey? I'm, I'm also very hopeful for a positive outcome. I, I also am, am mindful of the reality that this is a very long road uh, and Unfortunately for us, that that means that we're kind of left hanging in the balance, and we will we will have to decide how we're going to proceed for ourselves, regardless of the outcome of, of this particular case. Uh, but in in terms of the prospects for the future, and and for both ourselves and for everyone else, which is ultimately what our main goal is and was when we decided to file the charge. Uh, I am very hopeful that we will get an, an outcome that will benefit all of those who are situated uh, like we are uh, and, and are not getting the benefits that they rightfully deserve and, and are not able to start families because of it. And as their lawyer, Peter, how are you feeling? 
Um, I feel really good. I think um, the feedback we've gotten from lawyers and from a lot of folks out there in the country has been so positive. Um, and I've spoken with some, some of the very senior uh, former EEOC officials, including um, a good friend of mine, who, who uh, David Lopez, who was the, the general counsel, the top lawyer at the EEOC under the Obama administration. And um, he and a lot of others feel like this is a very strong case that that makes a very basic and straightforward argument about why there's discrimination. And um, we're, I think we're poised right now to have very um, kind of unprecedented progressive EEOC uh, commission. We'll have three of the most progressive EEOC commissioners in the history of the country um, by the end of the summer uh, and a department of justice that will work on this case as well in conjunction with the EEOC that is, is led in the civil rights division by Kristen Clark, who was one of the, the foremost civil rights lawyers in the country. We're, we feel like we put strong legal arguments forward. Um, and, and frankly, Corey and Nicholas are just great advocates. And I think that makes a big difference um, because when, you know, they're, even though this is about a policy, when you, when you actually speak with a person, a human being who's impacted and can understand why their humanity matters and why they feel like, and, and they're not being treated by um, their employer with dignity, um, it makes a difference. And I really think human to human contact in this, you know, this new digital world is, uh, is, is actually really important. I feel very, very strongly that if we, if, we, if we don't resolve this in the EEOC process, we'll go to court and we'll get a big victory. Corey, Nicholas, I'm sorry that you're having to go through this and it's delaying, you know, all, just the thing that you ultimately want at the end of the day, which is to start your family. But um, you have a lot of fans out there, especially gays with kids. Um, very appreciative of what you're doing. Um, same to you, Peter. And I can't thank the three of you enough for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks so thank much. for having us. Thanks, David. Look forward to coming back when we've won. Yes, absolutely. <laughs>